Chapter Six, Part Two of Shores of the Polar Sea, a narrative of the Arctic expedition of eighteen seventy five to six. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Avai in April two thousand twenty. Shores of the Polar Sea by Edward Lawton Moss. Chapter Six part two we were all prepared for a long and monotonous winter and each one according to his proclivities had drawn out for himself a lengthy program of improving study one would read through allison's history of europe another would master italian a third preferred german others chose music and would learn the banjo or if the mess preferred it the tambourine but the historic program only was carried out most of us found that our time was more than occupied with notes and observations of arctic nature that we might never have another opportunity of making there was the electric magnetic microscopic thermal and chemical states of earth air ice and water and a hundred other pressing questions that made us regret we had not spent our whole lives in preparation for our unlimited opportunities then there was other work that could not be postponed it was above all things necessary to ascertain the exact position of our winter quarters so that the geographical discoveries of the expedition the coastlines passed by the ship as well as those traversed by sledges might be fastened down to at least one fixed point for this purpose many careful observations of moon and stars were required and the officer who had accepted the duties of astronomer had no easy time of it he and his assistant spent many a chill hour watching the occultation or transit of some star or planet the observatory is necessarily open to the air snow wreaths festoon its walls and corners every breath freezes on the metal and glasses of the telescope even the vapour from the observer's eye quickly clouds the lens his assistant utterly unrecognizable under a pile of furs and mufflers stands shivering beside him carefully keeping a chronometer from the cold for neither watch nor chronometer will work in the temperature of arctic night the weather during winter was as a rule so calm and clear that observations on the stars could be made almost at any time but it was not a little remarkable that even at the clearest times some icy dust too fine to be called snow was always falling on the twenty seventh december for example it was so clear that a star of the third magnitude less than three degrees from the northern horizon could be satisfactorily observed and yet in twelve hours a glass plate exposed on top of a neighboring hill collected a quantity of little crystals equal to nine tons per square mile these crystals not to be confounded with icy dew formed on the plate itself were altogether too small to be seen with the naked eye but there was no difficulty in using a microscope even in the lowest temperatures except that the mercurial reflector was soon destroyed by the cold it was when these crystals assumed their simpler shapes and were abundant in the air that the moon appeared decked in those halos and crosses known as paracelina or mock moons 
twice in december we had good examples of them upon each occasion the moon appeared in the centre of a large and luminous cross surrounded by two circles plainly distinguishable between us and the snow-clad land the cross swayed and trembled with every breath of air and vanished altogether when wind disturbed the tissue of falling crystals but the halos were more permanent plate number seven gives a better idea of them than any verbal description it is a reproduction of a sketch made early in the morning of the eleventh of december our long-lost wanderer sally absence since fifteenth october when she was left by a sledging party near sickle point had just put in an appearance and may be seen in the foreground intensely watching the proceedings of two officers engaged in measuring the holes with a sextant apropos of sally her adventures might make a canine romance she was a young rather unsociable gray-colored eskimo dog that formed one of lieutenant aldrich's team in his autumn sledge journey into the untrodden north and past cape joseph henry like several others the cold and hard work were too much for her and she broke down utterly the more fits she had and the feebler she got the more she was set upon and bitten by the stronger ones it was impossible to delay the sledge and there was nothing to be done but either shoot the poor beast like a canine comrade a few days before or adopt a less merciful course and leave her on the floes with a faint hope that she might revive and limp home after the sledge it was in late september that sal was thus cast adrift on twenty second of october the men of captain markham's party fell in with her still lingering about the spot where she had been abandoned very lean and hungry but too wild or too feeble to follow them back to the ship from that time she was written down in the roll-call as expended week after week of cold and storm and darkness passed and every one felt quite certain that poor sal had gone to the happy hunting-grounds it is accordingly easy to imagine that her reappearance on eleventh december caused a decided sensation even her cold comrades could not believe their eyes but growled and stared at the gaunt prodigal that sat wolf-like on a snow hillock and howled dismally in the moonlight ever afterwards she was a changed dog she grew large and strong and her character became ambitious and overbearing when she set her mind upon anything she got it whether it was an empty box to sleep in or a neighbor's pup for a supper she became the favorite of the king dog of the pack dogs soon learn and never forget which is master and would feed between his paws but after a while she learned to beat her lord and finally usurped his throne and led the pack in work or play though a salic law is generally observed amongst eskimo dogs when the expedition returned she was given to our trusty eskimo fred who knew how to value her some of us would have liked to have shown her in england but it would have gone hard with the first cab horse she caught sight of the alert in her winter quarters at floberg beach was one hundred forty two days without the sun a week longer than the polaris and a month longer than any previous english expedition 
throughout the whole time the difference between noon and midnight was hardly appreciable but a long period of slowly lessening twilight preceded actual night our darkest time occurred between moonset on eighteenth december eighteen seventy five and moonrise on fourth january eighteen seventy six though indeed the periods preceding and following it were scarcely lighter many a time as we stumbled blindly along at daily exercise we discussed the question whether our noon was really as dark as an english moonless night the general impression was that it was not so dark the universal snow husbanded what little light there was and sometimes looked almost as if it was self-luminous although the sun was further off on the twenty-third december that was not the darkest day for the moon was not far below the horizon that day at noon it was just possible to count lines three millimetres wide when not more than four millimetres apart the twenty-eighth was perhaps our darkest day in order to retain some idea of what the darkness was we took a rough let's diary out on the floe at noon and tried to read the advertisements printed in large type at the end it was necessary to remain out some ten or fifteen minutes in order to get accustomed to the darkness and of course if one had any idea of what the advertisements were beforehand the test did not apply the words eps coco in type nearly half an inch long were easily read but the breakfast in small type between them was utterly illegible it was just possible to spell out Ötzmann in clear roman type five sixteenths of an inch long and after much staring at the page held close before the eyes we managed to make out great novelty in type one-fourth of an inch long of course the test depended as much upon the eyes as upon the darkness but it was at any rate a comparative one which would enable those who tried it to recall the darkness of their winter noon the line below will give an idea of the size of type legible at midday we have since found that such type is legible on clear moonless nights in england end of chapter six part two